So you can see in your bulletin that we're turning to Psalm 119 now. We're thinking lately in the sermon series about the habits of grace. We are those who have known God's grace and who want to know it more and more deeply. We want to grow in his grace. And sure enough, he brings that about in our lives in part by blessing our own habitual efforts, our disciplined efforts to seek and serve him, the habits of grace. And these past few weeks, the particular habits that we've been focusing on have been things like Bible reading and prayer. We want to be a people who spend that kind of time with God day after day. So we're reading his word and we're talking to him throughout the day in the light of his word. That's where we've been these past few Sundays. That's what we've been talking about. This Sunday, we're going to dig a bit more deeply into those daily routines. We do want to be a people who are spending time with God, reading his word. And that is not a shallow business. If we're going to read the word of God day after day throughout the week, well, that word, because it is the word of God, unlike any other word, that word deserves that we take the time to stop and think about it and take it personally and take it to heart because it is the word of God. Well, one way of putting that is to say it the way that the Bible says it, which is that we ought to be a people who meditate. We ought to be a people who meditate upon the word, and that comes out here in verse 27 in Psalm 119. But I'm going to read this whole eight-verse section so that we can see where this verse sits in the psalm. So listen now to the word of God. This is Psalm 119, beginning at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So there's verse 27, and there is where it's situated in our psalm. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now in prayer in the spirit of this very psalm, Psalm 119, which from start to finish is a celebration of your word and an expression of the desire to know that word and walk in its light. And so that is our prayer now, that you would bless us to that end, that you would teach and train and even change us by your word. 
For your word is mighty and is blessed by your almighty spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a, a truth of human experience that you're going to be more inclined to give your mind to some subject. You're going to be more inclined to think about it and to think about it deeply and to think about it patiently if it's a subject that's worthy of that in your eye. There's something fascinating about it, something complex about it. It's beautiful. Perhaps it's even a little fearful. It's wondrous. It's glorious. In that case, you're drawn to it. You're drawn to turning it over in your mind and reflecting upon it. You want to understand what it means. And then you want to understand what it means for you personally. Not so much if it's something that doesn't seem to be all that worthy in your eyes. So, for example, I could say this morning, let us think together, friends. Let us think together in depth and at length about cheese whiz. There's not a whole lot there to think about. It's not particularly fascinating or complex or beautiful, or fearful, or wondrous, or glorious. Now, I understand there's always a risk you run with a sermon illustration, because there might be a few of you who are thinking, ah, yes, let us bask in the glories of cheese whiz. Let's do a whole series on that, in which case we can discuss that during the sermon discussion. But really, we can admit there's just not a whole lot there. Not a whole lot there that draws you to reflect upon it to bask in it. Or to use our word today, there's just not a whole lot there or in other subjects, not a whole lot for you to meditate upon. But for example, if the subject is some wonder of the natural world, a vast ocean or a mighty oak, or it's some piece of music, an intricate classical composition or a layered rock recording, or it's some person who's fascinating and complex and thoughtful and creative and more, or it's some moment in history, a dramatic battle, a political rise and fall, whatever it might be, if the subject seems worthy, if it seems weighty, you're going to be drawn to ponder it. And not just one, not just briefly. You're going to dwell there, and you're going to return there. You're going to come back to it, because there is so much there to meditate upon. Well, brothers and sisters, in the whole of reality, there is no single subject that is so worthy and weighty and fascinating and complex and beautiful and fearful and wondrous and glorious as the wonders of God, including the wonders that he's done for us as his people. There's nothing like it that's so worthy of the meditation of our minds. The famous 
slogan is spot on. You know the saying, the mind is a terrible thing to waste. That's true. And we can take that slogan and we can put it positively as well. We can flip it. We can say, the mind is a wonderful thing to devote to wondrous things. At that point, you're not wasting it. At that point, you are answering the highest of callings and making the most of your mind. The mind is a wonderful thing to devote to to wondrous things, and there are no wonders quite like the wonders of our God. These are the things that most deserve our meditation. And right here in Psalm 119, right here in verse 27, you have the idea of meditation upon the works of God. Here in this verse, the psalmist is resolved to be someone who does, to be someone who does Meditate, who does think and think deeply and patiently and lastingly about the wonders that God has done. So let's take a look at this verse here. And just this one verse, I've printed it there for you in your bulletin in case that's a help. Psalm 119, verse 27. And notice how it begins. Notice the first half of the verse. He says, Make me understand the way of your precepts. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Psalm 119, this this long psalm, 176 verses. In this psalm, there are lots of different words that are used to refer in different ways to the Word of God. Words like law, testimonies, statutes, commandments. Well, here in our verse, the word is precepts, which is a term that emphasizes God as ruler, the authority of God as Lord and ruler. His is the authority to say how things are going to be and to determine what the rules are going to be in our relationship to him. This is a term that points us to God as commanding officer. And so here what the psalmist is asking in the first part of the verse is that God would bring it about that he, the psalmist, would grow in his obedient understanding of God's precepts. And notice the way he puts it. It's not just make me understand your precepts. It's make me understand the way of your precepts. The psalmist gets it. Not only has God spoken authoritative words as commanding officer, but by those words, God has set forth a whole way of life that we ought to live. And that's what the psalmist is hungry to understand. What he wants to grasp is that whole beautiful, faithful, obedient way of life that God has called him to. So that's how he begins. Make me understand the way of your precepts. And then what does he say next? The other half of the verse. He says, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Make me understand the way of your precepts. And then he says, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Meditate. It's a word that comes up several times. 
in Psalm 119. For that matter, it's a word you find at the very gateway, the entryway into the whole book of Psalms. Psalm 1, from the very outset, begins like this. Blessed is the man, and then it says, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So it's not just something of a theme in Psalm 119. It's the way you get into the whole book of poetry and songs that is the Psalter. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Biblical meditation. So we need to get clear on what that means and what it does not mean. In the Bible, what it means to meditate is to meditate upon the truth of God in some way. It's to think deeply and carefully and patiently about his truth. And to do so as somebody who wants to understand himself in the light of that truth and live like it. So biblical meditation, it's a very different idea from what comes to mind for a lot of people as soon as they hear the word meditate. For a lot of people, the word meditation brings to mind something that resembles the practices of certain Eastern religions. Light a candle, sit quietly, breathe deeply, close your eyes, and clear your mind. Empty your mind. But that's not what the Bible means. What the Bible means by meditation is thinking deeply and patiently and purposefully about some aspect of God's truth. So biblical meditation isn't so much a matter of stilling the body and emptying the mind. To the contrary, it's a matter of filling the mind with God's truth in order to consider that truth carefully and bring it home. And that's something you can do sitting or standing, when you're jogging or driving, when you're washing dishes or folding laundry, your body in motion and your eyes wide open. The Christian who meditates upon the gospel holds it before his eyes, holds some truth before his eyes, like a multifaceted jewel, and he takes the time to turn that jewel and to study it as each facet captures the light. So that's why I say the idea of meditation in the Bible, the kind of meditation that we're called to as Christians, it's a very different sort of thing from what comes to a lot of people's minds when they hear the word. Not emptying the mind, but filling it and then taking your time with it. Richard Baxter had this to say about the duty of Christian meditation and about how even in Baxter's own day, centuries ago, meditation had fallen on hard times. Here's Baxter, quote, It is confessed to be a duty by all. In other words, you know, Christians recognize this is the kind of thing we ought to do. This is the kind of people we ought to be. Baxter says, It is confessed to be a duty by all but practically denied by most. Many that make conscience of other duties easily neglect this one. They are troubled if they omit a sermon 
a fast or a prayer in public or private, yet are never troubled that they have omitted meditation, perhaps all their lifetime to this very day. Even though it is that duty by which all other duties are improved and by which the soul digesteth truths for its nourishment and comfort, end quote. So Baxter is saying, what a sad state of affairs. And it was true in his day as well as in our own. If we are careful to give ourselves to all of these other aspects of the Christian life, but we never nurture the habit to think carefully, patiently about God's truth, because if we're not that kind of people, then we're not really making the most of all of those other disciplines and habits and aspects of the Christian life. So that's what the psalmist is saying here in the two parts of this verse. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. And think about it. Those two are related. Make me understand, and I will meditate. And they're related in both directions. Each of them fuels and strengthens the other. On the one hand, the better you understand something, the more inclined you're going to be to meditate upon it. Like I was saying before, a wonder of the natural world or a piece of music or the loveliness of a certain person. The better you understand, the more your mind will dwell there and return there because you have grown in your understanding of just how worthy and wonderful it is. And on the other hand, it's precisely by continuing to meditate upon it that you grow in your understanding. And it becomes, by the grace of God, the most beautiful upward spiral. Make me understand. I will meditate. And as I meditate, Father, you are making me to understand. And round and round it goes. So both God's work and the believer's work are in view here. It's God's work to grant understanding. We're dependent upon him for that. That's why the psalmist prays this prayer. That's God's work. And at the same time, it's the believer's work to think, to meditate, and those go hand in hand. So there's an overview of the whole verse. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. And as we've noticed Those two go together. Now, one of the things that's especially valuable about this verse, as we we think today about the calling to Christian meditation, thinking about God's truth, what's especially valuable here is what it is precisely that the psalmist is resolved to meditate upon. What is it that he's determined to think about? Well, he says... Lord, it's your wondrous works. Sometimes it's translated, your marvelous deeds. Your wondrous works. And the reason that's so valuable, the reason that might get our attention, it should, is that that may not be exactly what we were expecting. If we didn't know how this verse ended, and somebody asked us to fill in the blank, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your fill-in-the-blank. 
We didn't know how the verse ended, but we knew that it was a verse in Psalm 119. We would probably fill in the blank, I will meditate on your... We would probably fill in the blank with one of those words for God's word, right? I will meditate on your law, testimony, statutes, commandments, something like that. Because after all, isn't that what this whole psalm is about? Isn't that what the first part of the verse is about? It's all about what God has said. And so it may throw us, it may surprise us that the psalmist fills in the blank not with what God has said, but with what God has done. God's deeds. I will meditate upon your marvelous deeds, your wondrous words. And that is valuable for our faith. I will meditate on your wondrous works, not just on what you've said, but also on what you've done, the wondrous works that you've performed to rescue your people. And one of the reasons why that's so valuable and so rich is that the very idea of God's wondrous works, his marvelous deeds, by the time you get to Psalm 119, That idea already has a rich history in the Old Testament. For example, Moses. Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. God's talking to Moses out of the bush. And what God's talking to him about is what God is planning to do to the Egyptians through Moses in order to set his people free. And here's how God puts it. Exodus 3. God says to Moses, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, Pharaoh will let you go. And of course, that's exactly what the Lord did. He promised that he would do wondrous works, and he did them. And to put it mildly, it worked. And then later on, years later, under Joshua, Clearly, the Lord wasn't done performing marvelous deeds just because he'd gotten his people out of Egypt. The same God who parted the sea in Moses' day, Joshua said he's about to stop the Jordan River in our day so that we can cross over into the land. And this is what Joshua said to the people. He said, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And again, that's exactly what happened. And again, God's wondrous works worked. He got his people into the land. One more example. In the time of Gideon, years later, Gideon remembered that God had performed those wondrous works for his people in the past. And for Gideon, that became the stuff of his complaint to an angel. Because in Gideon's day, things weren't going so well for the people of God. And so Gideon asks, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? In other words, why have we been laid low like this? And Gideon asks, where are all God's wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? So in Gideon's day, He remembered, he'd been schooled in those marvelous deeds. And that's why he looks around at how bad things were in his own day and can't make sense of it. 
So the wondrous works of God in the days of Moses, in the days of Joshua, in the days of the judges, and that's just a sampler. The Old Testament is shot through with the wondrous works that God did in order to save his people. And that's why this became one of the many reasons that they gave him praise. And if you read through the book of the Psalms, this comes up again and again. So, for example, Psalm 72, verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Our God is the only God that is. And therefore, he's the only God who does the kind of wondrous things that he's done for us. Psalm 72. Or another one, Psalm 86, verse 10. It says, you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. There's that same idea. Not only does he do wondrous works, but he's the only one who does because he's the only God that is. So throughout the Psalms, this comes up as matter for praise. Even Psalm 139, David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. David beholds the wonders of God, not only out there in the things that God has done, but as he reflects upon himself, as he looks in the mirror, as it were, and beholds quite personally one of God's wondrous works. So over and over again throughout the Psalms, you see, this is, this is reason to give God praise. And therefore, you also see, not just praise, but memory. The people of God were called to remember. They were called to carry with them the memory of the wondrous works that God had done. So Psalm 111, verse 4, says this, God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. It's not just that he did them, but that he provided revelation so that the things he'd done would not be forgotten by his people. Now, sometimes they were prone to forget, but at their best, they remembered. They remembered what he'd done. So it was the substance of praise. It was the substance of their memory. We can also say it was the cause or should have been of their humility. And you know who's a great example of that? Job. Job 37 verse 14. Job is addressed like this. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Read through Job. Job needs to be put in his place in the best possible way. Well, this is one of the things that puts him there. The the memory, the reminder of the wondrous works of God that he's done all along. So this was reason to give God's praise. This was the substance of their covenant memory. This was cause for humility. This was also, we can say, the substance of their tradition. In other words, the knowledge of the wondrous works that God had done for his people, that's what the people of Israel were supposed to take and to hand over to their children and their children after them. Psalm 78 says this, We will not hide these things from the children, 
But we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. These things are so glorious and so marvelous. We do not want the memory of what God has done to die with us. And so we're going to take what we know about what God has done and we're going to press those truths into the hands of our children so that they then can grow up with them and turn around and press them into the hands of their children. And on it goes. And not only do we hand these things over in the fellowship of the church, but we also announce them to the world. And even that, in a sense, was true in the Old Testament. Psalm 96 says this, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. So we are the one people in the world for whom God has done this, these wondrous redeeming works. And yes, we're going to hand them over to our own children, we might say, within the walls of the church. But we don't want these things to stay within these walls. We want to proclaim to the world, to the nation, that our God has done these things. All that to say... As you read through the Old Testament, just getting to Psalm 119, the wondrous works of God, that's a major thing. Especially the things that he did to set them free from Egypt. Those were the wonders that loomed largest in their covenant memory. So back to our verse, Psalm 119. No wonder that the psalmist is resolved. I will meditate on these things. I won't just consider the wondrous works of God briefly in passing and then move on like I didn't hear a thing. I will meditate. I will stop and consider and think and ponder and take seriously the wonderful things that he has done. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Now, everything that we've said thus far, we've said as those who are camping out here in this psalm, in the days of the psalmist who wrote these words. And we've taken a glance backward, you might say, throughout Old Testament history leading up to the psalmist's day. But of course, here we are in the year 2023. So now we we make our way from the psalmist's day and his Old Testament setting. And we make our way all the way to our day as Christians. And the question becomes, well, what, what does this mean for us? I will meditate upon your wondrous works. What does that look like for us? as New Covenant believers. Well, we have the glad opportunity, and we should look at it that way, to take that rich phrase, the wondrous works of God, and fill it in with all of the Christian meaning that the Bible allows. At the end of the Old Testament, God was not done 
performing wonders. To the contrary, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, God left his people longing for more. God himself had promised more wonders. And sure enough, when you turn the page in your Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's one page you turn, but you're turning 400 pages in history when you turn it from the Old Testament to the New. God starts keeping that promise to do even greater wonders. Because when you turn the page from the Old Testament to the New in your Bible, what happens? An angel visits a priest in Jerusalem whose wife is barren, and a son named John is born. An angel visits a virgin, and a son named Jesus is born, and so it begins. I mean, what God did to get his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, those were wonders to be sure. But now, now, in the fullness of time, God is doing wondrous works that surpass even those. It's an encouraging and fascinating Bible word search to go into your Bible software and search in the Gospels for words like amaze, astonish, wonder, marvel. Because over and over again, As Jesus, the Son of God, now come into the world, as he's going around teaching and healing, you can practically see people's jaws dropping because of the way he taught, because of the things he did. That's why I read for us earlier in our service from Mark chapter 1. What did we hear? They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were amazed. The next chapter, Mark chapter 2, heals a paralyzed man. The man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Or one more, Mark chapter 7. It says this, they were astonished beyond measure. It's not enough to tell us that they were astonished. Imagine being astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So throughout the course of his earthly ministry, this was true. But then, of course, crowning that ministry was the greatest, wondrous work of them all his death and resurrection. And after he's raised from the dead, he appears to them. And Luke says, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Isn't that a great description? He's standing right there, the risen Christ appearing to them, whom they thought was was dead. And they disbelieved for joy and were marveling. So what does he say to them in that great moment? He says, have you anything here to eat? They're speechless, but he's not. Do you have anything to eat? Because he wants to to prove it to them. I mean, you talk about the wondrous works of God in Jesus Christ. That's why I say this is a calling for us as Christians now, even more so 
Because in Jesus, God's wonders are even more wonderful. If the psalmist was resolved to meditate upon the wondrous works of God, how much more should we be a people who are resolved to do so? And that becomes the challenge this morning for all of us here today, which is, are you? Are you resolved to think about these things? Are you resolved to be someone who meditates upon the truth of God, including the wondrous works of God? That's something that ought to characterize, that ought to mark our daily lives. That we're that kind of thoughtful people who think about what God has revealed, including what is revealed about what he's done. Now, as soon as I say that, that that ought to be true of us, I also want to say, like all of the other habits and disciplines that we've been talking about in this whole sermon series, there's flexibility and latitude and freedom when it comes to what exactly that's going to look like in your own life right now. And in any given season in life. But one way or another, whatever precisely it's going to look like in your own life in the course of a day, you want it to be the case that you're somebody who takes God's truth, including the truth of his works, and who turns it over in your mind. Reflecting, considering, connecting could be what you just read in the Bible or what you read in your Bible earlier that day. Could be what you heard recently in a sermon. Could be what you read last night in a book about God's truth. It could be anything. This isn't just for seminary professors and PhDs. This is the stuff of ordinary Christian living. Each of us loving the Lord our God with all our minds, making the most of the mind that he's given to each and every one of us within the context of the callings that he's assigned to us. You want it to be the case that you're somebody who takes God's truth and who turns it over in your mind, reflecting, considering, connecting. And this is a matter of resolution. Like the psalmist. That's why I asked before, are you resolved to think about these things? He says here, I will meditate. Now, he says that mindful of the fact that he's utterly dependent upon God if he's going to be faithful. But still, he takes his stand. He says, yes, this is the kind of man I'm determined to be. I will meditate upon your wondrous words. And we need to be resolved. Why? Because in a culture like the culture we're living in, in the day we're living, we're up against it, brothers and sisters. We are swimming against the tide. If Satan himself were given the freedom to design just the culture that he wanted, in an effort to keep Christians from being the kind of people who meditate, who contemplate, wouldn't it look an awful lot like ours? So noisy, so constantly abuzz with mind-numbing distractions. Well, in a culture like this one, 
in a day like this one. We're going to have to be resolved. We're going to have to be determined if we're going to meditate upon the wondrous works of God. The world says this is a colossal waste of time. The misconception is, the distortion is, meditation like this is worthless, it's fruitless, it doesn't do any good, it doesn't get anything done. Stop your meditation already and make yourself useful. But brothers and sisters, we ought to know better. Real meditation, biblical, spiritual contemplation, bathed in prayer, it is lively, it is active, it is fruitful, it is energizing. Don't believe the lie that meditation is a waste of time. And in case it helps, just to grease the skids, to get things going, let your mind regularly run to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? We're thinking about meditating upon the wondrous Works of God, that's as wondrous as it gets. And you can always go there. Think about the wonder of the Son of God coming into the world and becoming one of us and dying for us and rising for us. The most wondrous works of them all. And don't just think about Christ. This gets back to something we noticed before in Psalm 139. There's somebody else that you can think about as a marvel, a marvelous handiwork of God. And it's yourself. Remember what we heard earlier, Psalm 139? David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You can reflect upon the wonder That you are. It's one of my favorite lines from Star Wars when Han Solo says, you know, sometimes I amaze even myself. Leia is underwhelmed. (laughs) She says, that doesn't sound too hard. But sometimes I amaze even myself. (laughs) There's some real truth in that line for the Christian. According to the Bible, you ought to amaze yourself. Which I know sounds like the worst kind of self-esteem nonsense run amok, but it's true. It ought to be a marvel to you just to stop and think about what you are. And, and not just the intricate and fascinating biology that you are, but intricate and fascinating biology plus divine image made by God who's over the world to be like God in the world, to be thinking, feeling, willing, planning, creating, ruling. Christian, you ought to amaze yourself. And you ought to praise God for it like David did. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's just for starters. As a Christian, you ought to amaze yourself twice over. Not only are you a fascinating creature, Made by God, bearing the image of God, but now also you're a redeemed sinner who loves the God who redeemed you. And that is marvel upon marvel. When you stop and think about what you were or what you would be if God had not changed your heart. In all of these ways, Christian, you are a living, breathing wonder work of God. And it is no sinful self-absorption to look in the mirror and to think about yourself that way. Even to stop and take some time and think deeply about yourself that way. That's not pride. 
because you're doing so in the light of God and for the glory of God. So will you, whether it's thinking about yourself or thinking above all about Christ and what God has done for you and in you in Christ, will you meditate? Are you resolved to meditate upon the wondrous works of God? May we do so. May we be that kind of people as those who pray for understanding at the very same time. So let's pray together now. Father, that is our prayer now, the very prayer that we just studied. We say together now in prayer, make us to understand the way of your precepts. We would understand that whole way of life that you have prescribed for us as our commanding officer. And we are resolved to meditate upon your wondrous works, above all what you have done for us in Christ. Forgive us insofar as we have been mindless and use this day, this word, to change and sustain and encourage us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.